chapter 2. Hosea is one of what we call the minor prophets in toward the end of the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 2. We'll read 1 through 16. Let's hear the word of God. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked. And set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof. And I will recover my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease. Her feast days, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burnt incense to them. And she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels. She went after her lovers and forgot me saith the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Isha, 
shalt call me no more Bailey. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. When we read the Bible, or rather, when we hear God speak, it is not just about the people back then and to them, but it's about us and to us as his set-apart people. It's God's word. And God speaks to us as we are reading it, as we are hearing it. And as we read it in many places, but especially in this passage, God's amazing grace. Pictured and proclaimed God's astounding grace. Pictured and proclaimed. I just want to read one verse for now and then look at it in context. And it would be helpful if you have your Bible open because I will go back and forth a little bit. And so you'll see some connections that you would miss otherwise. So I encourage you to have your Bible open. Just read Hosea 2.14. Therefore, did you notice that was the third time? That word therefore. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I want to speak about comfort in the wilderness. The wilderness of this life. There are set apart people traveling through the wilderness. And I trust and pray that we're not only on the way to Canaan, but all enter into it one day. Comfort in the wilderness, a painful reality. Second, a loving method. And third, a surprising grace. So first, then, a painful reality. When it says here, bring her into the wilderness. Children, you may be thinking it's about that woman, Gomer. Well, it is about her and it's about Hosea. But it's also about Israel and their God and us and our God. So why did the Lord choose to bring her, them, his bride, into the wilderness? Because they departed from God. From the Lord, their God, who told them on Mount Sinai and told us this morning, I am the Lord, thy God. And we see this painful reality that they parted from their loving God who had done so much good for them. We see this illustrated. It's the first thing to, to note. It's an illustration here. From the very beginning of chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. Verse 2, in the beginning of the word of the Lord to Hosea. And then the Lord said to Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. 
great whoredom. Spiritual, spiritual adultery. Idolatry is adultery. It's a woman leaving her lawful husband. They worshipped other gods. We read even in this chapter 2 that the word Baalim, plural. They worshipped other gods, Baals. But at the same time, we also see from the very start God's gracious purpose. Every time when the Lord uses harsh language, he also interjects the promises. Even in the very name Hosea. Hosea. It means the same thing as Joshua. And what does Joshua know? Name. Children, you know what the name Joshua means? Yahweh saves. It's the same as in the name Jesus, because he was called that name because he shall save his people from their sins. So from the very beginning, the picture was already Hosea. His name was already a witness and a testimony. And that makes it very plain that the Lord saves only for his name's sake. Not because of the people being so good or us being so good. It's very clear. That's why he set them and us apart. Every Sunday we hear, let out of Egypt. Many of us, most of us probably never were in Egypt. We know that that's the picture of God setting us apart as you are my people. For himself. That's why he reveals his name to us. We take it for granted, don't we? So often that we know the name Jesus. That we know that God is the I am that I am. But it's a privilege. Many people never hear of that name. And they did. And they divorced themselves from the Lord their God. As a wife leaves her husband. So the Lord tells Hosea to marry a harlot or a prostitute, a whore, an adulterous woman. Spiritual adultery. An object lesson for them and for us today. And not only that he is called to marry her, but he's going to have children with her too. Three children we read. If you go back to that first chapter, you'll see the first one is Jezreel. Call his name a boy, Jezreel. I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house. The word Jezreel means Jezreel, God scatters. God sends him into captivity. But it's meant to be like scattering of a farmer to bring forth fruit. It's for a good purpose. And yet it's at the same time a punishment. God will avenge himself because he's a jealous God. We heard that this morning too from the law. He takes it serious if we leave him, resist him. Jezreel, he will scatter them later among the nations in the Babylonian captivity. And later with the Assyrians. And all 12 tribes eventually be scattered. And only the two tribes return. 
And then the second child, a daughter, read in verse 9. Lo Ruhama. The word lo in Hebrew means no or not. Ruhama means mercy. So the very name that Hosea is to call that daughter is to express God's anger. No mercy. That's what you deserve. You deserve no mercy. And then the third child, in verse 9, you read, Lo Ami. That's a son again. Lo Ami. Lo means not. Ami. Am is people, and the E at the end, or the I at the end, is my. Not my people. No mercy, not my people. That's what you deserve. Even though I call you still my people. Jeremiah, I believe, says, my people have committed two evils. My people forsaken me, and also you, thou broken cisterns that hold no water. So these children's names were illustrations of the anger of God. So the painful reality of their sin was illustrated, but secondly, intensified. You see, because they didn't just sin out of ignorance. They knew, and so do we. And really, so does the world. Deep down, all people know there is a God. Romans 1. All people know there is a law. Romans 2. Very evident. People might resist and fight against God and His Word and God's people, but in their heart, they know you're right. You read it very plainly in Romans 1 and 2. They know there's a law. They know there's a God. So they knew, and so do we. We're, we're taught and we're warned by God's word, but also our conscience. Our conscience. Even the people that do not have the law of God in their conscience, they know. Even people that believe in evolution, even atheists, they know it's wrong if I would steal their wallet. They can have no good reason for it if they would not believe in the word of God. If they believe in evolution, then the right of the strongest prevails. If you truly believe in evolution and chance and not in God, I should be perfectly fine taking your wallet. Killing you. And yet all people know, not intuitively, but divinely implanted in our conscience. The word conscience means with knowledge. Painful pricks. And also not only in the the painful pricks when they sin, but also in the very fact that they keep pursuing things without being satisfied. They keep trying. They go and follow after lovers, we read about it. But she shall not overtake them. Seek them, but shall not find them. Not being able to get that fulfillment that longing, deep longing in the heart, filled to overflowing, stumbling around in the dark, 
And God says, you are my people. You're actually worse when you do this. When you serve the gods of the nations than the nations themselves. You sin against light. So God says, I'll, I'll take you from a spiritual wilderness into a physical wilderness. A real one. An actual wilderness. So it's easy to comment on what's happening in the world. And as we talked about in the class, to be amazed at all the evil there existing in the world. But we should be more amazed at the good that still is there. And we should also realize, congregation, that the judgment begins at the house of God. Why is America the way it is? They all are responsible for their own sins, but we are for perhaps not having been that light in that dark place as we should have been, or a grain of salt to flavor the dish. So the Lord makes it very plain. He says it's a painful reality, and it's pictured here, illustrated, but it's also intensified, and the Lord does that by, by making them suffer. By making them feel what they already know. I have to think back of my dad telling me if I would not obey or listen, he would say, if you will not hear, you will feel. He would discipline. And that's what the Lord is doing here. And there's four key words of that pain here. In this passage, four key words. The first one is thorns, chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, that's the first therefore, by the way, because of what they have done with God's gifts. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find a path. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Isn't that what we see in the world? A desperate search for happiness? Trying to find it apart from God? In whom alone we can be fully, fully satisfied. So God says, I'll, I'll, I'll hedge in your way with thorns. To keep us from breaking out into bold sins and gross sins. going after our lovers or the things we love wanting it so badly not realizing that it's God who is preventing us hedging in our way if it wouldn't be for that the congregation we would follow the way of the Lord just like they did at that time and Baal worship was not only spiritual adultery it was physical adultery as well it was wicked, perverse Immoral. Thorns. That's the first keyword that ex expresses that painful reality. The second one is famine. You read that verses 8 to 12. Famine. Because they were, they were honoring their gods and they were getting all these things. But they, then the Lord says, for she 
They did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. They thought they got it from Baal and they were honoring Baal with it. But God says, I gave it to you. And then we get to the second therefore in verse 9. Therefore, I will return and take away my corn. God says, it's not Baal's, it's my corn. Did you notice the emphasis? Take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool, my flax, and to cover her nakedness. Famine is the second word. So if you abuse all the good gifts, God is saying that I have given you, I'll take these gifts away. Isn't that, though, however painful it is, grace at the same time, God could have said, I will take you away. Just in case that you think it's harsh that God gives the, takes the gifts away. Let's be thankful that he doesn't take us away. And gives us what we deserve. Famine. But then also shame. And it already is in the end of verse 9. My flex to cover her nakedness. And then verse 10. I now will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And none shall deliver her out of my hand. Her lewdness. I will discover her, or uncover her lewdness. In other words, not just having a prick conscience, because children and all the ones in our midst, if they've done something that's not right, we know it's not right. We know it's wrong. But what makes it worse if we're exposed, if you're found out, right? Children, when you say sometimes, all the ones, to your mom or your dad, no, I, I didn't do that. And then something comes out and it proves you did. It's embarrassing. It will cause you to be ashamed. Which really is nothing else but hurt pride, of course. Embarrassment. Exposed. Found out. It's like shame and then the fourth word is sorrow sorrow verse 11 God says I will also cause all her mirth or joy or happiness or celebrations to cease her feast days her new moons her sabbaths all her solemn feasts all the feasts will be gone no more feasts no more what we call and the world calls fun because all that fun that people pursue at the end leaves us empty that's a mental reality we can all agree with but do you, do you know something about that in your life having, having experienced thorns in your way and, and that the Lord has given you these moments even publicly that you had to be embarrassed before each other very painful but extremely profitable. Better than it stays on the ground. So if you have a secret sin, something that you deal with, that you, that you know it's wrong, but you keep doing it, not only call upon the name of God, but ask a fellow believer to help you. Come clean. Repent. And believe for the first time or again.
The Lord says, I will, verse 13, I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, where she burned incense to them. Not just to him, Baal, but Baalim. And she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, said the Lord. How can you do that? Therefore, behold. Therefore, behold. What would you expect if you go from 13 to 14? Therefore, behold, I will destroy you. I will doom you forever. And it brings us to the second point because it's totally different. A loving method. Yes, it's a painful reality to be comforted in the wilderness because you will not have comfort without conviction, without pain. You will not have the balm of Gilead without the pain and the sickness of sin. Behold, I will allure her. The Lord says, I will allure her. I will woo her. Like, like a, a young man tries to court a young lady in order to get to win her over, to marry her. That's really the word alluring means. I will draw her with love. And later on in his book of Hosea 11, verse 4, the Lord says, I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love. So it was not harsh. It was loving. So the purpose to, to make us see and feel the painful reality of our sins is not to destroy us, but to save us. Nobody likes pain. But we need it in order to find a reality in our life that we need a doctor. Spiritually. Not to destroy, but to save. Just like we discipline children, just afflict a little bit of pain to prevent something far worse. And that loving method is, in the first place, I want to understand and want you to understand it's promised. It's promised. The whole Bible is about it. So not only that they and we are warned or convicted, but also encouraged and comforted that we know it's coming because we sin against God every day more than we even realize. If God would leave us to ourselves, if he would not convict us, that'd be far worse. I know it doesn't feel good to be convicted, but it is good. Therefore, it was promised. Already in chapter 1, verse 7, we read, but, but I will call him no mercy, lo Ruhamah. But it says in the next verse, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. God says, I will do it. If they would but return and repent. But they would not return and repent. That's why God sends them in these, in these difficult ways. And it's often the reason why we go through difficulties. Either to chastise us or to prevent something worse. To prepare us for stronger temptations. Promised. In 2 verse 19, God says, 
I, the Lord, will betroth thee, engage thee. I will allure you to that engagement and that marriage. I'll betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindnesses, plural, and in mercies. I will betroth thee even to me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Not only as an angry God, but as a loving God. He will remarry them. Isn't that amazing? In chapter 14, verse 4, the Lord says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away. I love them freely, for free, only for my namesake. Not because anything in them, because if it be about them, it'd be done. If it be about us, it'd be done. Even the sins of this morning, of this hour, is enough to cast us into eternal damnation. Jeremiah 31, 3. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. The same word, drawn thee, allured thee, drawn thee to myself. So this loving method is promised, but it's also demonstrated in the names that you catch that. Younger ones, older ones, that you catch that, that the names have changed, that you see in chapter 2, verse 1, that the word low is missing. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, my people. The word low is gone. That we saw in chapter 1. And then, and to your sisters, Ruhama. Mercy. The word low is taken out. You are my people and you will have mercy, the Lord says. Demonstrated even in, in, in the names and in, of course of also the very fact that Hosea has to marry this prostitute. Of course, ultimately, God's loving kindness is demonstrated, promised and demonstrated. The very coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God to become man to live and to die for sinners. Jesus says in John 12, 32, I, if I be lifted up, crucified, from the earth I will draw all men to me. It's the same that drawing, that wooing, that alluring, not by force, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, said the Lord. Song of Solomon, 1.4, draw me and I will run after thee. In other words, not to force us to serve him, but to win us over, to make us willing in the day of his power. Demonstrated, promised, demonstrated, but also accomplished. Of course, we know it. Looking back from our time that the Lord Jesus has come. And we see also that Israel, indeed, the Lord came back to them. And two of the 12 tribes didn't return. Only to, sadly, instead of being unrighteous, they became self-righteous. Before the captivity, they worshipped idols. Not so after. But then they became very pious. And self-righteous. Both cases would have been lost without Jesus. 
So yes, it is painful to be convicted. It hurts. But it's not just only profitable, it's also very plainly our fault. We would not have been hurt if we would have obeyed him. We wouldn't have conscience pricks if, if we wouldn't do that sin. I'm just thinking about God putting that hedge with thorns. And children and all the ones, you just think about it. You go for a hike, parents. And you go on a trail. And, and there's a, a patch of thorn bushes. You say, children, stay on the, stay on the path. Don't go run there. It's going to hurt. So if your children are going to run into that thorn bush and they can, oh, it hurts. It's so painful. It hurts. What do you say as parents? I told you to stay on the path. I told you, I warned you, if you run through these thorns, you get hurt. Stay on the path. On the right path. So it's our own actions that cause that hurt. And therefore it's God's kindness to make use of it for good. For his glory and for our good. Both at once remember the story about Paul when he was on the way to Damascus he had hardened his heart and we know from the past from that verse what, what, what Jesus says to Paul that the apostle Paul had been already convicted several times he was doing wrong even though it says he thought he did God's service but there was this nagging doubt how do I know listen to this when the Lord Jesus strikes Paul down, Saul responds, Acts 9 verse 5, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to get to kick against the pricks. As if to say, why do you keep kicking against these conscience pricks, Paul? Isn't it hard? Isn't it painful? Like, the, pricking, the kicking against the pricks that was like a farmer would have an ox pulling the plow and they would have a sharp stick in his hand with a sharp point because these cows didn't want to be plowing that field. So they kick back and they hope to destroy that plow. But then the farmer holds that sharp pointed stick behind it so they kick against that prick and it hurts. So they would stop kicking. That's what our conscience is. I have a question. How long have you been kicking against the bricks? I'm not just talking to the believers. I'm talking to unbelievers. I'm not just talking to unbelievers. I'm talking to believers as well. Because it's not only the unbelievers that kick against the prick and sometimes go against their own conscience and try to push it away. It does not work. There's only one way to repent, to turn back to God, confess our sins, and to know that he's faithful and just to forgive us, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to be at peace with God and with each other. If you have an unresolved thing in your family, with your children, a spouse, and husband, whatever it is, own up to it. Ah, it's humbling, painful, embarrassing, but it's worth it. You know when you have confessed sin to each other how the air just clears up. That you are amazed how much you can love each other while you were so angry a few minutes before. 
pictures God's grace. So it's not only about, um, as I mentioned already, about dealing with sin in our lives, because every sin is idolatry and adultery. But it's also about how to deal with the thorn in our lives. So one part is about being chastised by God for a particular sin. When we put too much emphasis on making money, for example, or see how much money we have in the bank, or whatever other thing you might have made quietly, slowly, secretly, and idle in your mind, where you lean more on, on a certain activity that you like better than, than other things, than going to church or reading the Bible. What does excite you? What makes you get up in the morning? What do we really live for? For the gifts or for the giver? But as I said, it's also about the thorn in the flesh. It's preventative medicine. Like Paul had a thorn in the flesh, he says, lest I be exalted above measure for the many revelations, lest I, lest I be proud. God has given me a thorn. Does it feel good? No. Is it good? Yes. Because Jesus says, my strength will be perfected in weakness. And Paul goes even further. He glories in it that the power of Christ may rest upon him. God says, if you abuse my gifts, whatever it is, health, property, family, can even make an idol of our family, and you forget me, the giver, I will deal with it. I'll take it all away. If you think, if I think, I can do as I please, God will take it away. So we get again to that amazing word, therefore. To a third point, is surprising grace. Let's just read the text again. And think about all that had been said to them. All the sins they had committed was just gross. It was wicked. It was perverse. Then the third, therefore, in verse 14, our text, therefore, behold, look, pay attention. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. And then even that could say, you will perish in the wilderness. But we read and speak comfortably unto her. Literally, the original says, I'll speak to their and your soul. I'll speak comfortably. You know, and I want to just emphasize this. Even though we know, and we are promised as Reformed Bible-believing Christians, that when we confess our sins, that God will forgive us immediately at the very moment we confess. We know that. Isn't it still surprising, though, that God actually does it? Are you really amazed increasingly as you get older by his amazing grace? That God is not only ready and able, but also willing 
to love us and to fellowship with us, to call himself our father, and we may call him our father, that we may be his children. The reality of that, I don't know if you can identify with that, I do. Many times when I, I know that I have the word of God to back me up, that I confess that my sins are gone, but I don't feel that. There's the sorrow of sin mixed with joy in Christ. This sometimes keeps truly repentant and believing sinners from joy, from peace that passes understanding. We know it, as I said, from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. That means he promised. And just, because Jesus died, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. That's verse 7 of 1 John 1. We know it's a fact. And yet it's overwhelmingly surprising. Why is it that so often it holds us back from that joy that we keep thinking about our own sins and shortcomings. Why is that? Well, the first part is that it is unexpected. Unexpected. As I made it already clear the way I read that first, it's totally counterintuitive. We could not begin to deal with each other like that. How many times I've talked with some of you about it. Will you forgive if I would come into your house and say something very nasty, very offensive, and I, I leave in anger and come back and knock at the door, will you forgive me? How many times would you allow me to do that? And every time say, I forgive you. Be honest. Would you go to the 70 times 7? Or be done after three or four times? I know where I would be. I know where I should be. That's why it's so hard for us to imagine that God will do it because we have such a hard time forgiving each other. We think that God is altogether such a one as you are, he says somewhere in the Old Testament. He's not like us. He's unlike us. Unexpected. Puts us face to face with a dramatic, unexpected contrast. Behold, I will allure you into the wilderness and speak comfortably to you. I will hurt you, but I will heal you. I'll hurt you for your good. That's what discipline and discipling is all about. It's not just about the people back then, but it's about us today too. Three times the word therefore it's the same as in Isaiah 43, 24. We read this. Verse 24, and then I'll read 25. Verse 24. Thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. God says. You expect condemnation. And yet that we read in verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake. And will not remember thy sins. We remember them, but God will not. 
That doesn't mean he's forgetting, but he will not hold it against us anymore. Clean slate. Every night. Do you, do I really appreciate that? That I can go to bed every night with a clean slate. For all the sins that I have committed, some of them I know, many of them, most of them, we don't know. We don't even know how many times we sinned. Isn't that gracious that God then forgives us the sins that come to mind? We confess them. Even if we do it in a general way sometimes, we should be as specific as possible. So if you confess three, four, five sins of the day that you remember, ten maybe, whatever, twenty if you can think of it hard, that he not only forgives those twenty, but all the rest of it. Package deal. Incredible. Unexpected. That's why it's surprising grace. Surprised by joy. Unexpected. Second, undeserved. Undeserved. So not only that we kind of realize that it is true, but then we realize, but I'm so undeserving. Sometimes we feel, we think that we must feel we're forgiven. Feel that we are worthy of forgiveness. Remember Luther said, once when a man cried out in his presence, when Luther says, man, if you confess your sins, your sins are forgiven. Then Luther said, the man said, but I don't feel that my sins are forgiven. Then Luther said to this man, you must not feel that your sins are forgiven, but believe that your sins are forgiven. I mean, if ever anyone would come to me and say, I finally have reached the, pl- the point where I, I realize uh, how unworthy I am, then I will talk to you again. Because you've only seen the beginning of it. You've only seen, we, you and I have only seen the beginning of our unworthiness to find our worthiness in Christ and in Christ alone. He is worthy. And it's because of his worthiness, his perfect obedience, his perfect sacrifice. His resurrection and his intercession at the right hand of God. That holds us up. For my own name's sake. Undeserved. The very word deserved mercy is a contradiction in term. Mercy is never deserved. It's always undeserved. This is God's awesome Gracious use of the word therefore. You find it in Ephesians 2, for example, too, right? Where we read verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he has loved us, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, together with Christ, raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places. As we sit here together, and if you're a believer, you're actually already seated in heavenly places. In God's mind and perspective, it's already a done deal. Even though we still struggle with the painful reality. The battle between sin and what is good. Also the battle between faith and feelings. Or faith and circumstances. We listen too much to what we are thinking. Our own thoughts and our own opinions. 
to forget that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And another reason that we sometimes struggle with this, this surprising grace, not only that's unexpected and undeserved, but it's unfathomed. Unfathomed. As I said, we have only begun to see a glimpse of it. It seems too good to be true. And you know what it is, right? When you have an advertisement and when you go to look for the actual item, it, it never exactly measures up to what you thought it would be. When we deal with people, often it is too good to be true. When we deal with the pleasures of this world, it is too good to be true. But not so with God. I find a beautiful story. And children, you remember the story of the Queen of Sheba when she came to King Solomon? She had heard about Solomon's wisdom and his wealth, his riches and all that stuff. And she thought, nah, that, that can't be true. I'm going to go check it out. And then she says at the end, when she has seen it, in 1 Kings 10, I believed not the words till I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. So first it was too good to be true, and then it was far better than she even heard it. She could have had that assurance already if she had simply believed. And that's how we live through this lifetime until we see the Lord Jesus and then it will be confirmed faith will be confirmed with sight we not only shall see him as he is but be like him then sin will be done until the time we call to live by faith in things that we have not seen I quite often use an example when I visit people that struggle with the reality of this I use a simple example when I say, did you expect me today to visit you? And they would say, yes, of course. I said, why? Well, you told me. Ah. Did you feel that I was going to come? No, I didn't feel anything. So you just believe my word. And you believe my word. I'm a sinner. A sinful man, you believe him just on his word? I could have forgotten that I was going to visit you. I could have been killed in an accident. Or I could have just not felt like it. I just don't feel like going. Not so with God. How quickly we are to believe the word of a sinful man. And slow to believe the word of God who speaks nothing but truth. Always truth. Complete truth, perfect truth, eternal truth. As I mentioned before, it's just the, the very fact that we have the Word of God shows us only a glimpse of who God is, who we are, and who Jesus is. Just a small little light. Because it's what's to come is unfathomable and when Jesus was referring to this queen of Sheba he said behold a greater than Solomon is here Jesus came 
to speak truth. Convicting, but with the intent of comforting. So today, if we are convicted in our conscience, thank God for conviction. It'd be worse if you would not be convicted. If you would minimize your sin. Because if you minimize your sin, you minimize God's grace. The more you realize how sinful you are and that God still forgives you, the more you realize how abundant God's goodness and grace is. God says, I will, I will lure you in the wilderness. Whatever that alluring was going to be, by force or by temptation or whatever it's going to be in our life. But speaking to our soul. In the midst of our wilderness... Not only the outside wilderness of this world, which is horrific, but also the inside wilderness so often, which also is horrific. Our soul, our old nature, we are believers, is still a fountain of iniquity. It's a battle between spirit and the flesh. And there's only one comfort. That's the very same comfort we read here and also in the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question, what's your only comfort? The only comfort in life and death to belong to my faithful Savior who gave himself for me. You see, there is the only comfort and the, not only the only comfort but also the only fulfillment. But now by faith where the joy in Christ is still mixed with the sorrow for sin. That balance has to be there all the time. If that's not there, you may wonder if I'm really on the way. But to ask yourself, examine yourself, and see what happens. And I'm almost done here, the concluding verse of the, the, this chapter. God says in verse 15, I will give her her vineyards, it's interesting, not my vineyards, from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord is actually reminding them, remember how you got into the promised land through the wilderness? And then Achor is like the same as Achan, where Achan died when, when Jericho was defeated. But that was at the same time a sad thing for Achan. But it was the open door when they could sing to enter into the promised land. And the Lord says in verse 16, It shall be in that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, my Lord. Ish, Lord, Ishi, my Lord. And no more Baali, no more my Baal. So the Lord says, this is the purpose, that you will call me my Lord. Call me my Lord. No longer my sin, my Baal. This is what discomfort in the wilderness is all about. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee for uh, the unspeakable gift of thy son. Comfort beyond description. Lord, we have only begin to, begun to stammer something about it. Oh Lord, help us to reflect on it more and, and live accordingly more and, and be thankful for the convicting um, work of the Holy Spirit so that we may be brought more to the comforting work of the Holy Spirit as well. Forgive us our sins also this morning and go with us the rest of this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.